Welcome back to The Francisca Show, where we encourage fellow artists and entrepreneurs to collaborate and support each other while sharing their stories. I'm Francisca, a singer, composer, music producer, and also your host. Hey, Francisca Show fans. Thanks for coming back and happy 2020. For those of you who are celebrating for me, it's a mark of two things that I have set in for 2020. I have a new website, franciscamusic.com. I would love for you to check it out. There's some new services that I have there, and I'd love to really focus on building relationships with you. So I would love to hear from you. I would love for you to reach out. I'd love to start conversations and talking about how we can actively start improving the community for Jewish women in the arts and entertainment. I think there's so many conversations to be had. I think there's so much that can be done, and I'd love to start these conversations. Also, I'd like to start implementing some things that can actually provide some tools and for things to start changing and happening. On another note, I would love to focus on also making this a more educational experience. I know this has been a platform for women to share their stories primarily, but I also think there's a lot of information that you might want to get out of this podcast because we are focusing on a niche that I don't think anyone else really is delving into. So I would like to provide more value for you and get more guests on the show that will be giving you the information and the resources that you might want so you could get more out of this time that you spend listening, which I'm so thankful for making this podcast a part of your routine. Super exciting announcement. We are warmly welcomed as of January 1st onto the jewishcoffeehouse.com platform. The jewishcoffeehouse.com hosts a bunch of Jewish podcasts that you may find interesting. And now the Francisca Show is a part of that platform. And I'm so excited because I'm hoping new people who are interested in this topic will find this show through that platform will come to us. And I'm hoping that you also go check out their website and maybe find other podcasts that may be of interest to you. It's such an honor to be on that platform. So shout out to Rabbi Scott Khan. Just a few podcasts that I really enjoy. Orthodox Conundrum, that's hosted by Rabbi Scott Khan himself. Intimate Judaism, co-hosted by Rabbi Scott Khan and Tali Rosenbaum, who we did have on this show for the Kolisha episode. And Chochmat Nashim, that's co-hosted with Shoshana Keats Jaskal with Ann Gordon and Rachel Stomel. And as I've mentioned before in this podcast, the Mimi Boutique was a sponsor slash collaborator for my photo shoot that I did for the new franciscamusic.com website. And she's awesome. She created a special promo code just for you guys who listen to the show. You can go onto the website if you'd like to make a purchase. Just use the code FRAN. 10 for a 10% discount. She has everything from clothing to head accessories and a lot more. Definitely check it out. And she features so many different brands of Jewish women, including Mika Fashion. So go to themimiboutique.com. I'll also link it in the show notes for you. Here's your show today. Thanks for listening. Today we have Rebitson slash Ant. Hani Levine, a Rebitson, a creative spirit, and a nurturer. Welcome to the show. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. You are a 
very dedicated fan of the show, and I love, love having listeners on the show, and especially people who respond and have feedback and tell me what, you know, how we can improve the show. So it's it's such an honor to have you on today. You also are my great aunt, and we had my grandmother, your sister, on the show. So we have a little bit of family background, and I just am so excited for you to share your story with us. So I'll let you begin. I guess we'll start with your journey into your role as a Rebbitzin of the Lower Marion community where I live. First, I wanted to tell you that I hope that my being on your podcast will introduce you to new people who will watch because I'm on it and they'll get hooked with you. And so that's that's the reason why I'm doing well, it. Well, I, I appreciate it. So tell us how you transitioned to becoming one of the youngest Rebbitsons ever. <laughs> Right? You were 17 or 18? <laughs> so uh, I was 17 when I got married, much to my husband's embarrassment. Uh, he never dated anybody that was lo- that was less than 20. It was a big thing. But I was 17, and uh, he left me, Baruch Hashem. <laughs> and so, so I got him. Yeah. When I was single, I said to myself, there are two careers I I didn't want to marry anybody that were that was either one of them. I didn't want to marry a teacher, and I didn't want to marry a rabbi. And when I married him, he was both. So there you go for all those preconceived concepts of what and who you want to marry. But I always knew I wanted to marry a mensch, someone kind and good. And that, is, that he certainly is and has always been. So this was the path he chose. Zadie, my father, was a chazan, so I knew what the role of a rabbi and a rebbitzin were. And I love Yiddishkeit. And I was blessed after our sojourn in Jersey City to move to a community where they had no preconceived concept of what a rebbitzin should or should not do. In older congregations, they had this thing, oh, a rebbitzin can't do that. A Rebbitzin can't do that. She has to dress like this. There were a lot of rules involved in being a Rebbitzin. But coming to Balakinwood when I came, there were there were no preconceived, and they accepted me and allowed me to be me. And so over the next 40 years, that concept of a Rebbitzin was whatever I made it to be, which was kind of a good way to be. <laughs> I feel like many Rebbitzins in my around me are your type of Rebbitzin. My mother went to Moscow, also no other concept of Rebbitzin. My sister-in-law, I'm sure I'm missing some other major Rebbitzins out there who I'm close to. But yeah, going somewhere where anything goes. But I never knew you were into that, where you felt like you needed to be you. You were more traditional. I just don't like constraints and preconceived. Um, Because a lot of, you have to remember, when I became a Rebbitzin, it was a long time ago. And codes of behavior, generally now codes of behavior are looser. So give me a few examples of codes of behavior. The first thing that came up was I I was raised in a house where uh, when you went to, uh, when you volunteered for something, you went all the way in. And I would, and I would serve and I would help clean up. And I, and I was told in the first rule, Rebbitsons don't clean up. 
that doesn't pass for the Rebbitson to do that. Uh, but I, I hated the role of sitting, usually bored, when I could get up and I could do something and be helpful. So that was, that was an expectation that the congregants had. And I was 17. The next youngest woman in the sisterhood of the, my our first jewel was 52 years old. And she said to me on the fir- at the first meeting, oh, I'm so happy there's another young woman for me to be friends with. Well, <laughs> so you can see the, the, the difference. When I came to Ballet if I got up and helped, they were thrilled. <laughs> As, and, and it was just the opposite. I set an example. Oh, if the Rebbitsons going to help, I better get up and help too. But even in dress, you know, I could dress casually. I didn't always have to be dressed. I could wear a jean skirt, which was avant-garde at the time. People didn't dress like that then. And I could do interesting things. When we first came here um, and I was, uh, I had a, a, my kids and I was walking around in a, without sleep for a lot of years. As soon as they entered school, I was looking, I looked out to find um, interesting things that I could do to stimulate my brain, which had been occupied with baby bottles and diapers for a long time. I got involved with the University of Pennsylvania's uh, museum that had a program where you they trained you, you picked your subject, and then you went out into the Philadelphia public school system and you taught the subject. So my subject was Lenny Lenape Indians, which were the native Indians for this area. And I would go out with um, objects from the museum, uh, artifacts and archaeological specimens. And I would talk to Philadelphia inner city children about the Lenny Lenape Indians. It was a lot of fun. My kids were thrilled with what I was doing. And the Balabatim enjoyed this little twist that their rabbits and was going out to do something like that. That was a fun thing to do. And you transitioned into, I know you were telling me about this, the kosher program within Penn, uh, Penn Law School, that the Jews had no kosher food there. And you, you took it upon yourself to feed the, the Shomer Shabbos. To feed the hungry. Feed the hungry. <laughs> yes. No, because there there are programs. I I in between the, my little Lenny and Nappy thing, and working at the University of Pennsylvania, I was. I we needed to supplement the income, in some way. So, uh, I started little businesses. So the first one was the flower arrangement. I, I even got into flower making because one of my customers, a bride, um. Is aller- was allergic to flowers. So I made all of the centerpieces out of gray paper flowers that I made myself. And um, I had taken a course on how to make gray paper flowers, and I did it. So that business lasted for a little while. And then there was a, in our community, there was uh, no real kosher food available. Um, in Valley Kidwood, not like now, where you've got a lot of restaurants and bakeries and two two supermarkets that have a whole section. Everything came in from outside, even to the point where I was running for the shul wine and cheese sales periodically, like four times a year. 
where I would take orders. It was for the sisterhood. And I'd drive into New York and I'd go to Miller Cheese and and I would get all kinds of kosher cheeses because you couldn't get any here. And I'd bring them back and, and we'd have a big uh, sale and, and things like that. And then I had a little catering business, which we called Notch and Nibble. Um, I baked chalice and made kugels. But then my hand... My family went hungry because my oven was constant. My oven in my kitchen was constantly making food for the business, and um, the kids were very unhappy with the, the whole setup. <laughs> so I gave that up too. That's when I decided I needed to get a real job, not because we needed the money, because we wanted to go to Eretz Yisrael. And that's when I got a job. I got a job at the University of Pennsylvania Law School in the admissions office which turned into a 25-year job. And that's when I brought the, my uh, talents to their use as I did wherever I went. First of all, when Orthodox boys, all girls, but in the beginning it was mostly boys, there was a, a lower ratio of girls that applying to law schools at that time, got in and we'd have a party to welcome them or something. There was no food for them. So when I saw that somebody was coming from either YU or they wrote in their personal statements that they had a yeshiva background, so I knew that they were kosher, um, I told the dean, I said, you know what, I'm going to bring food. I'll package it. My husband will give the hashka, but we'll write that it's kosher on it so they'll eat it. And I'll bring it for them. When we had box lunches, they'd have a box lunch. And that turned into something that Penn did on their own. The first couple of years, I did it, but Penn took it over. And till this day, they always provide kosher food for, to the point where they've been law school classes where they've had a minion of Orthodox boys. And made you very popular amongst very clever individuals with high IQ <laughs> in the Jewish community. <laughs> I'd love to uh, talk more about your needlepoint. We haven't even touched upon that. But then I, I had a few difficult or interesting questions I wanted to touch upon. So you have a, an incredible talent. You have turned your needlepoint into these beautiful tefillin bags and ataras for Torahs and your mezuzahs in the Great Synagogue. So tell us a little bit how that got started and, and also connecting your art with Judaism. I love this combination. We keep having so many Jewish artists who take their form of art and they they channel it into something Jewish, which is so beautiful. So the mezuzah that's hanging in the in the great synagogue is the only piece of petty point that I ever did. And thank God it was a small piece because petty point is a hundred stitches to the inch. So it's very, very tiny. Yeah, that was that was a challenge, but it was small. So I <laughs> the whole thing might be two by two. So Simi was an artist and Linda was a decorator and I had this um, desire to do artistic things as well and express myself in some format. One day, so the, a lady in the shul had a pool and when my children were young, um, she invited us over during the summer to use their pool. So she was a needle pointer. And she got me started on doing needlepoint. Um, so the first needlepoint I did was I made a talus bag for my husband. Of course, it had a lion on it because he collects lions. 
And then it, from there, it just grew and grew. And then Linda, my sister, she saw some of my work and she said, oh, honey, this is so good. You know, there's a woman in Manhattan who makes a lot of money doing this. She designs them and then she sells kits and you could do that too. Because Linda was the businesswoman. Simi and I are not businesswomen. That's why I had so many little businesses because they ended up helping people doing it. I, with the flowers, if it was a poor kala, so I do it for nothing. And but, but but Linda always had her eye on the on the. She was good. She was the first one that went into the business to make money on it. So she was pushing me from behind, telling me, you know, you could do this and you could make it a commercial success. In the end, I didn't. I didn't make a commercial success. I did teach other people and I did design other pieces for other people. Like somebody, um, one of our Balabatim's mother wanted to make him uh, an Atara and he's a doctor. So she, on her on the Atara, she wanted to have this uh, medical symbols. So I did it for her. I, I didn't do the needlepoint. I, I did the drawing on her thing. I made her the, the canvas she used it and other other people had come through where they needed that kind of help and I was happy to do it but my own creativity was used plus I I got your your grandmother once I gave her my canvas to make a palace bag for your grandfather may he rest in peace and I gave her the canvas and I told her I liked she made a painting of Moshe in the bulrushes and I said, you paint that onto my canvas and I'm going to make it a needlepoint. She liked it so much. She used to keep it on the couch in the living room. I don't know if you remember. Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah. So for each one of my, for each one of my grandsons, I made them filling bags for their barbers with. And then, and I'm, I'm pleased to say that some of my um, grandchildren have continued the the custom. Lolly started taking did some my daughter did some needlework. Her daughters and daughter in law daughters in law and now great and granddaughters who come into the family, she encourages them to make their Hassanim um a talus bag. So it's nice. It's nice to see that it's going through the generation. Especially when you're teaching the skill and you're not just giving them a talus bag saying or a tefillin bag but it's teaching them the craft, passing it on to generations. That's a really beautiful tradition yeah. here. Yeah. So you did mention earlier how you were preparing to make Aliyah or you wanted to move to Eretz Israel. I just wanted to follow up on that. Was there any tension with making your way there? And is that something you can share with us? I like to do what I think is right. And I think it's right to live in Eretzisro. So when my husband said that we had a, we said, okay, we have a five-year plan. We'll be here in Philadelphia for five years. And then we'll move to Eretzisro. Well, the first five years came and went and we didn't do it because we were building the community. It, it wasn't ready for us to consider leaving it. At the 10-year mark, I think we took a trip to Eretzisro and he was offered two jobs in Israel. So we were considering it strongly, but he asked a Shaila in Eretz Yisrael, and he was told that the work that he's doing in, in America is more important than the, what he would be doing in Eretz Yisrael. 
and that we should stay and build a community here. So that's what we did. And uh, we've sent, the Lower Marion Synagogue has sent more families on Aliyah, quality families, people who have made great contributions to the state of Israel and Eretz Israel in many ways. So even though we didn't do it then, I think we certainly set the tone for our shul that it's it's a wonderful thing to do. And we encouraged Balabatim who showed an interest in following that. And I don't know that I've given up the idea entirely. I love my family and the idea of being the only one from my own family to be in Eretz was was something that tempered my desire to go but didn't stop it because my husband's whole family had at that point already gone back to Eretz Yisrael and were living there. So it's not like I was family-less, but it wasn't my mother or my father or my sisters or my brother. And we're a pretty tight-knit family. And then as my parents got older, we didn't talk about it too much because I wasn't going to leave them when they were older. And then when Nebach, they passed away, my husband had physical, has um, health issues that keep us, that keep us here. Oh, I don't know that they always will. So who knows? If somebody had told me 10 years ago that my life today would be what it is, I wouldn't have believed them. And I expect that in 10 years, with God's help, if I'm still here, my life in 10 years will be something that I can't imagine now. So who knows? God has a plan. Hashem does have a plan, yes. But you are young in spirit, and I've always viewed you that way, not only because you're the youngest of, <laughs> in your family. You're open-minded, and you are open to change at every point in your life, which naturally, people, the older they get, the less interested in change, in behavior change they are. It's beautiful how how there's this um, openness and there is this honesty that you have with yourself to, you know, this is working or this feels good. I know you have your Fitbit and you're always walking around town and get to see you sometimes when I'm driving. So I love the spirit in you. Yeah. I, I, one, one time when I was very involved in the sisterhood and I made, we made a program about different phases of people's lives, of women's lives, basically. We had a panel, and I was one of the people on the panel, and there was this young woman who's no longer in the community who was uh, working towards her doctorate. And she fascinated me because her whole family, her husband and children, their lives revolved around her goal of her doctorate. They moved to where she was studying, not where he worked. He got a job because of her. And everybody's schedule circled around that. And I found that fascinating. She was one of the panelists. And I I came to a, a tremendous realization at the time that there were kind of two personalities in life, seems to me, my own little philosophy here. Um, there are people who have a very strong will and what they determine they want in life, they plow through with it, and everybody around them accommodates them. And then there are people who ride the 
right life. They wait for opportunities. They see an opportunity that presents itself to them, and they grab that opportunity and they go with it. So their life is not so much predetermined as they're waiting for God either to give them a symbol, you know, send them a sign or open a door for them, and then they know, and then that's where they go. And I realized I'm one of those. I'm not a trailblazer that's going to make other people accommodate themselves to me and my desires. But I'm not putting a value judgment on either because both have um, good things to say for them. They both have uh, positive aspects and probably negative too. But I'm more of, a, I wait. And at different points in my life, when there had to be decisions made about which way to go in my life, I always talked to God. And I said, Hashem, show me the way. And he did. So, yeah, I, I sort of wait for things to happen. And, and I go with the flow. I have a question for you. And we've talked about this before when I brought up the topic of Yoetzer Halacha on the show and Jewish women in Jewish leadership positions uh, that are potentially more controversial today. So I wanted to ask you on air, on record, and what I want to bring out in this conversation is the, the other perspective, because you do have a different perspective. Yes. And you are someone who is extremely happy with your role as a Rebbitzin, as how how the roles have been assigned, I guess, or passed on. And you're you're very content with the traditional Rebbitzin role. And I'd love to hear your perspective on this whole Yoetzer Halakha movement and how you feel about it. So my objection to the Yoetzer Halakha movement is exactly that, that it's a movement. And my objection is that I have no objection to girls learning Torah. Rebbitzins have been Yoetzer Halakhas for years, for centuries, because women who had shyness didn't necessarily want to talk to the Rav. Some, some felt comfortable doing it, some did not. So who did they talk to? They spoke to the Rebbitzin, who related to the Rav. And if he wasn't around, sometimes there were times when uh, 50 years ago, there was a Rebbitzin in Chicago, I forgot what her name was, who was giving Hersherim, that everybody ate from her after. It was on the labels of the products. It's not like this is a trailblazing thing that has not happened before. Devorah, I mean, we would go back to the Torah. There were Jewish women leaders of Klal Yisrael. So it's not that I object to that. What I object to is that we are living in a society where young women view life through the eyeglasses of feminism. The only ism that I support is Judaism. And I feel that from women, especially from women. I understand if a conservative woman wants to call herself a rabbi because the conservative movement is making it up as they go along. They take what they want and they leave what they don't want. And the reform abandoned almost everything and just kept, you know, whatever, whatever seemed to please them. But if you are orthodox in any sense of the way, you're committed to halacha and you're committed to what we would call authentic Jewish law. So I think that everything that you look at in life, and this is how I've lived my life, I view through the eyes of Judaism. 
Torah Judaism. There are so many causes. There are so many isms out there. Yiddishkeit Judaism lost so many, many people, women and men, to communism. You should know this because you must know Russian history. What a lot of the leaders of the communist movement, excuse me, Marx was a Yid. He wrote the book on socialism, which led to communism. So there were so many isms that come along and they cloud out Judaism. They view the world through the eyes of those isms. And if Judaism doesn't line up with it, they throw Judaism in the garbage. I think that everybody, and this is my objection to this, to this particular movement, that it's feminism looking at Yiddishkeit and saying, we don't like this, this is not what we want. Rather than saying, I have a desire to be a Tamidah Chachama, and I want to go and learn, and I want to enhance the Jewish life, and I will do it within the framework of Orthodox Judaism, because Orthodox Judaism is the thing I really believe in. And if I'm studying Torah, because I believe in Orthodox in Torah, then my ideas of modern feminism have no relevance in that. So that's exactly what I object to. I object to it being a separate movement within Orthodoxy. Yes, if you want to learn and you can make a name for yourself, just like you with your singing, how you, you face a problem because of Kolisha. So first of all, there's a large segment of the Orthodox community that if more people are singing, there are heterim, there are heterim, if it's on a recording, there are many Orthodox people who do it, uh, who listen to, to Kol Isha when it's not a Kol Isha right in front of them. So there's a, it's a broader, halacha is pretty wide and it has a lot of give. To set up the rules of femininity, of the feminist movement, as decider of what is the important thing, this is, this is where I disagree with them. The important thing is not feminism. The important thing is Judaism. If you can accommodate some of your feminist feelings within core of Orthodox Judaism, kalakavod. I'm behind you. I'll help you. I'll enjoy the fruits of your labors. As soon as you start telling me and criticizing Orthodox Judaism because it's not making room for you, I don't see you as looking at it through the eyes of Yiddishkeit. You're looking at it through the narrow eyes of modern feminism. And that's going to come and go. So now that I've complimented you on your open mind, can I try to express <laughs> a few rebuttals here? Okay. And I used to not do this. I'd like to just express how I don't think the Yuatzer Halacham uh, initiative came out of a need for feminism necessarily. I think it got categorized and dismissed by labeling it feminism. Lou Greenberg, yeah, Lou Greenberg was one of the first feminists and I know exactly where her head was. So besides for this being, you know, women needing to feel like they have a leadership role, it's more like there's a solution to a problem where women feel unheard and they don't feel like they have anyone to go to. 
that has qualifications or education or they feel and today a lot of you at Sarawakha also get training in other areas so they can service not just because rabbis end up being therapists sometimes which is not so healthy but the idea is they're not just playing the religious role there's so many different elements especially when it comes to Taras and Mishpacha so I feel like it's more idealistic in terms of there's a need and today especially more than ever especially with the Me Too movement and this is countering that another thing is Sarshnir started the Beis Yaakov movement and today no one would call that feminism because if anything you're not Jewish enough if you're not in Beis Yaakov and it's just how people label things to dismiss it or to make it not kosher. I don't think the women who go into this industry I think they're so serious and they're so respectful of halacha and it's all about halacha and it's everything is about Judaism and it's not about themselves as women necessarily it's more about how they can help the women in Judaism who need services provided that aren't available today or aren't available in the comfortable way they need to be just like Sarashtir accommodated for her time for what the girls needed to keep them Jewish that's where the divide happens I think because clearly you do agree with women taking leadership positions and you've you've taken a, a leadership position and Dvorah has Hadassah Women, which is not necessarily uh, built Hadassah Hospital, that was women. It's nothing new that women have leadership roles. This is my point. Women, and you added to my point, you actually buttressed my argument with the with Sarah Schneera and, and the Beis Yaakov movement. So you're saying you don't have an issue with the Yoetzed movement only because they call themselves a movement? I No, because they... Because they did not come at it from from the they if you'll follow the history of where it's coming from it didn't start it's it's a political movement and it comes and it started with feminism and you might be a little too young to know the earlier part of it that because you could say the same thing is true about the conservative movement of Judaism i mean those people, the people who were the original conservative Jews, for a lot of them were somewhat Shomer Shabbos. They didn't, they ate kosher in their homes. They didn't want to give up Judaism entirely, but they live in the United States and it's to accommodate them and it makes it more appealing to them and it makes them more comfortable and it's modern and it's this, but they sniffed the concepts of Orthodox Judaism. They, they they started sniffing at changing Orthodox Judaism to accommodate the modern world. So I don't think that's what the Yod said. If anything, they're so committed to halacha and, and, and the program is so strict, I think. So the Yod sets are a, are a, maybe they're suffering for the women who became Rabbanits and who are getting there, which started first. In other words, feminism came along. And suddenly there became a need for Jewish women to take on the roles that men have had. Yoetzet Halachas have fallen into an area where there were women who did what the Yoetzet Halachas do, and they were called rebels. And so it's not like the, nobody did it. When, when my mother had a Shaila, she, she had somebody to call. When she needed a question on, there were people who were doing this down through the ages. Many of them were the women, and if they and they brought the shaila to the rub. 
Either that or they went directly to the rough. Either way, women go to male doctors, but there was nothing wrong with using a, a Rebetzin in the way. And Rebetzins did do it. As I pointed out, there were Rebetzins giving her shkachas 50, 60 years ago. So it's not like I have a problem with people doing that. My problem is that at a time when um, if there is attack on Orthodox Judaism um, from the fringes of it from within, who are saying, and I'm not going to name the rabbis who have done this, who have started giving uh, smicha or uh, to to women. I don't understand, in all honesty, why a woman has to feel like she has to be have the rabbi t- title of rabbi. You can be just as influential. You said there are rabbis now who are who do. My husband has a degree in psychology, so that when he counsels the many people that he's counseled in his whole long career as a rabbi, had the benefit of modern psychological techniques and science to help mend whatever needed mending. It's not like it's a closed-minded door that halacha has set up. It It's not. It accepts what's good. But I'm coming back to my, my metaphor of the eyeglasses. If you're a Torah true yid, then you look at everything that the modern world has to offer, and you look through the eyes of Yiddishkeit, and if it, accom- if it can be accommodated within a Yiddishkeit, sure, come on along, that's fine. But if you're looking at Yiddishkeit through the eyes of the other discipline, in other words, when science looks at Yiddishkeit and says, the world wasn't created in seven days because everybody knows the scientific principle cannot be true. I don't know that that scientific principle cannot be true. They still don't know how the world was created. I trust that a Kaddish Baruch who made it because the Torah tells me that's the way it is. And I believe that if you want to call it a big bang theory, so a Kaddish Baruch who made the bang. But if you're a believer, the believing comes first. And if what's presented to you, I just read an, uh, an article on the theory of Darwin's theory that nobody in the scientific world believes that anymore. This is the scientific community, that, that it's, it's not truth. And that's why it was called a theory. Most of these things are called theories, because if something comes along that's going to prove it differently, they're ready to hear it. But mine isn't a theory. Mine is a deep felt belief in Torah. So I don't have an objection to Jewish women, as I said, about learning. It's just that in this political time when it is a political movement feminism and you do yourself hold about the me too movement you know those are all those are secular movements and i view all secular movements through the eyes of yiddishkeit i don't and that's my view you're not going to change me it doesn't mean i judge I'm sure they're very brilliant young women, and many of them are really dedicated and provide a good service to their communities. But I don't see where having somebody who's living in New York and you have to call her by telephone to ask her Shyla is better than calling your local Rebbitson who who has many degrees and has as well, as fine as an education as any Yo Etzet Halacha. 
you call her if you don't want to speak to your love about your Shila, and she would be more than happy to help you and provide the answers than to this stranger who is hired by your community to be called the Yoetet Mahalacha, and she doesn't even live in the community. I don't see where that works for me. I think that's a put-on commercial kind of a statement-making position, not about true providing. If you're talking about providing a service for a community, it can be done without having that setup where this woman is there. I, I, I don't see why it has to have that because that's foisting feminism into Yiddishkeit at a time when it has to stand. There are times when you can open the door freely and let fresh ideas come in. And there are times when Yiddishkeit is under attack and then you have to hold tight to keep it solid. So right now, this the feminist movement has been taking, I know some of the women who were in the original start of the feminist movement, and they had a political goal in mind. Yes, they had all kinds of wonderful other things going for them, and, and they were dedicated, but they were making a statement not about Yiddishkeit, they were making a statement about we are women and we believe in this and we want to be heard and seen and known. I am a Yid. I am a Yid and I want Yiddishkeit to be heard and seen and known. Me, myself as a woman, my husband as a man, that's not what's important. What's important is the Torah and the Yiddishkeit and keeping it as my husband says, keeping it for the next generation the way it was handed to us, that we are the link in the golden chain. And if you want to be a strong link, you have to stay tightly closed to the link before you and to the link after you and pass it on that way. And not add your little flares along the way that weaken it. Because if you weaken it too much and you change it too much, you end up with other branches of, quote, Judaism, which aren't really Judaism at all. I So I hear where you're coming from. I, I see how the women came in with their statements and their ideas and feminism. First of all, the Torah does not say that you cannot be heard as a woman and you cannot, be, you cannot have a voice, which is exactly what they're asking for. They're not asking for anything that's not halachic. The other thing I wanted to touch upon was that at the time when Sarah Schneer was pushing for women to learn, it wasn't a given that it's okay for women to learn Torah. It wasn't a given. Like today, it's a given. She went to Rabbanim and she got the support of some very harsh... And there are a lot of Rabbanim. There are a lot of Rabbanim. But there are a lot of Rabbanim who criticized them. Today, listen, there are no Torah cards. No, but today there are a lot of Rabbanim who do support the Yoetzer Halacha idea and and hold on, and then not every Rebbitzin, just because she's married to a rabbi, because that's the man she chose to marry, not the profession she chose to marry that ends up going on her, does not qualify her or necessarily interest her to volunteer. Let's say she's a doctor and she's not interested in providing those services for the women in her community so they feel more comfortable. And here you have someone who's getting paid for their time, just like a rabbi is paid 
hopefully, by the community to take care of certain issues. And then, yes, in today's environment, women do want to have a safer or more comfortable uh, experience when asking questions. And I don't think it's the same as a doctor necessarily. And having a broken telephone potentially happen when the Revitin is transferring information and then it happens on the way back as well. So they're, they're, I think it's, it's a progress and it's strengthening the chain, not weakening the chain. Even the Yoetzet Halachas, if I'm not, in, uh, if I'm correct in what I have read, all ask if they they have a rav that they uh, if it's uh, simple questions can be answered by people who deal in. But if there's a real shyla, they go to a rav. A rav. Exactly. Exactly. Right. I know. So I'm saying, you know, that's why I said on an individual basis, it's the whole concept of the whole movement of it that bothers me. And and it's political statement part of it that I find difficult. And if there's not, and as you said, if there's if one Rebbitson in town doesn't want to do it particularly, there's always a Rebbitson that that uh, there's always. Well, she she might be in New York, and you might have to call her up. <laughs> and also, you are absolutely entitled, and we respect your opinions a lot, and you're allowed to have them, and you have so much experience. And it was so wonderful hearing your perspective. We all want what's best for Yiddishkeit. And that the end, the, the proof of the pudding will be in the pie. If the next generation, as is committed to Yiddishkeit, as this one and the previous one, then it'll be proven that maybe I was wrong. But if, if their children, uh, uh, fall by the wayside and 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 become other than um, then then maybe I, I was right. Well, rabbis, prominent rabbis, you know, your children are not necessarily reflecting upon you. Their their own people. That's true. Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov all had children that were. And it doesn't reflect necessarily upon their parents even though the parents feel a tremendous... And nonetheless, it is the parents' responsibility to and do their best. Parents have lots of responsibilities. <laughs> this was so lovely. It was such an honor having you. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for sticking around until the end. Thanks for listening to the Francisca Show podcast on jewishcoffeehouse.com. And don't forget to check out the mimiboutique.com and you can use the promo code FRAN10 for a 10% off discount. I would love for you to share this podcast with your friends or anyone else you think might enjoy the show. And please do reach out to me with feedback by emailing me at franciscak at gmail.com. See you next time.